This is On Your Radar, Series 2, Back to School in the New Normal, a podcast series featuring the expert medical and clinical staff at Rosecrans. I'm John Williams from WGN Radio, and this series of podcasts explores the fear, anxieties, and concerns for educators, students, and parents alike as the school year begins or has begun following a year of hybrid schedules and distance learning. In this podcast, we want to focus on how to set boundaries and promote resiliency for a teenager who refuses to engage. And joining us in this conversation again are Jason Relly, LCPC. He's the clinical director at Rosecrans's Griffin Williamson campus, and John Tonino, LPC, unit coordinator at Rosecrans's campus, the Williamson campus as well. Uh, gentlemen, once again, uh, we've had conversations before. It's nice to visit with you again. Thanks for joining us. And particularly, Particularly now, where we talk about what families need to do, how they need to be engaged, how are we going to try and capture some sense of normalcy in 2021 and 2022, what about the teenager who refuses to engage? I suppose that's been something the two of you have dealt with in your careers, and I wonder if it's more problematic now than ever. John, you've been working this work for the last year anyway. This isn't new to you. What have you seen in the last year, year and a half, and and has the cooperation, let's say, of the teenagers changed much? You know, I think when working with adolescents at our residential program, there's always going to be, at times, a certain level of resistance from our clients, right? Over this last 17 months, have we seen a little bit more of it? I think there's definitely been more of a resistance in regards to recognizing some of the struggles, whether it substance abuse or mental health, within the teens. You know, recognizing that struggle to to theorize about what that, why that might be. You know, I I think being able to potentially be at home, be away from schools, you know, being able to create their own structure, it might be a little bit easier to to be an adolescent and, and say, I don't have a problem. I'm going to be okay. I'll make it work because I've figured out how to make it work, you know, over the last 17 months. But when talking about substance abuse disorder or mental health disorder, if it's impacting a, an adolescent's ability to make progress, to be successful in a school setting or home setting, you know, that's typically when parents start to ask questions or, or schools start to ask questions and, and kind of elicit help when the client's struggling in that regard. So, you know, I think there has been a little bit of resilience, or not resiliency, resistance yeah. um, in in, our, in the adolescence over the last 17 months. Well, Jason, I would imagine in the best of times, kids don't usually volunteer for this, right? They need to be persuaded or forced to attend. There aren't many times where someone is necessarily singing and skipping down the, our hallways and walking through the doors with... Uh, an overt willingness to come into a six-week program and stay 42 days and hit this magic marker and then everything's going to be okay afterwards because you're giving up a lot of things in developmental markers in adolescence. You're giving up your autonomy for that time. You don't have the ability to do what you want whenever you want. You are giving up that opportunity to be social if you have relationships that are really important to you, if it's a significant other or your best friends or different things that you would have experiencing this past year. At the beginning of, of summer, it was, this might be my first opportunity to now go see my friends because th- things started to open up. 
a little bit in those months. And so it's like, but now I have to go to treatment for a month. So yes, even beyond this year, it is something that we've been experiencing. Well, I wonder what's more compelling, the desire to do that or the fact that you're addicted to something. If I'm in treatment now, I don't get my drug. I don't get my alcohol either, right? It's the first time in a while you may have to manage things, stressors, emotions, without that ability to use a substance or cope in a way that you've had, especially in this last year where you may have had not as much access, but the opportunity with time to use it when you wanted at home. So that's something that is now absent when you come into Rosecrans Residential Treatment So you're confronted with those feelings that are going to flood you potentially, and there isn't a way to manage that is the most comfortable at the beginning. And I may be too far ahead in this conversation. I'm imagining actually persuading or finding the best way to get somebody to engage in a treatment plan, but maybe preliminary to that, what's the best way to get them to engage so maybe they don't need treatment so that they can work out their issues, they don't rely on substances or alcohol, or they can manage their mental health better. I guess there's some resistance generally to that as well, right? I mean, isn't that the nature of a teenager to begin with? There's this idea that I don't have a problem, it's not me, I know how to figure it out, I don't need to do that, I don't need help because I got this. And sometimes right now there's this feeling that, well, it's it's okay, I'm still doing all right. You know, my life hasn't been shifted or changed a ton, so why should I go talk to somebody? And how would you know anyway, since, heck, you've been in your room for the last year? I mean, a lot of the ways by which we would judge your engagement are gone anyway, John. So I would imagine just knowing, you know, how... I I could see the child being very defensive about their position in whether or not they're fully engaged since the whole world hasn't been fully engaged. Yeah, definitely. I think markers of substance abuse disorder aren't necessarily that you went from one substance to another to another. Now, okay, now it's a problem. What really is when substances impact, whether it's an adolescent or an adult's ability to kind of function in everyday life. In adulthood, we think of whether it's DUIs or um, maybe their significant other is going to threaten to leave them if they don't get their act together or losing a job. For adolescents, it tends to look a little different, right? It might be grades are slipping or they're giving up extracurriculum activities. They're changing friend groups. You know, they might be going into dangerous areas, neighborhoods to pick up substances. Some of the markers of substance abuse disorder for adolescents does look a little different than adulthood. And, And to your point, yes, over the last 17 months, a lot of those markers have, I don't want to say taken away, but it's it's been easier for adolescents to kind of navigate through some of those markers, right? So what does a parent do then? What are some of the things that if they do see some of these signs, if they're worried about it, what's the first step for mom and dad? The first step is always to have a conversation and ask questions, and that seems very easy. And it doesn't mean that conversation with that teenager is going to be very successful all the time that first time. It may be like, I'm fine, good they shut their door but continuing to know hey i am here for you if you need something and starting to establish that this is an okay boundary where i recognize something and 
I think there's something going on. I love you and I'm here. What are some what do you mean by boundaries? Give me an example of what some of the boundaries our parents will set. One of them may be if somebody's isolating a lot in their room in the evenings or weekends because that was semi acceptable over the last year because there were a lot of families who were at home with one another all the time. It may be, hey, for this hour we're gonna do something as a family and it's gonna be something like a board game where it means it's it's not highly competitive, it's not something that is just sitting around. It's something that we're actually going to engage in together. It doesn't even mean we have to go into deep topics, but it provides an opportunity for us to grow as a unit together and do something to take the focus off that ability to just, okay, I'm going to hide out in my room. Or mm. John, that sounds so cheesy. That sounds so so corny or, I don't know, obvious. Um, is What do you make of that? Well, I mean, I know it, it definitely, I mean, they, a lot of times they say something's cliche because it's true, right? So whether we want to call it addictive behavior or addictive cognitions, things like that, for parents to definitely, if they it's something where they have suspicion or those red flags have gone up, to do some of their own research, right? And to try to maybe learn and understand some of those things. And before maybe, cur- you know, pre-pandemic was a, a, a child breaking curfew and being out till one or two in the morning, whatever it is. And to Jason's point, now it's, well, my son isn't coming down for family dinner, which we we said that's going to be an expectation. Looking at some of those small behaviors over the last 17 months is important. And while it might not mean that that a, a child needs to go to residential services, you know, if there's enough of those red flags and there's enough of that concern, it might mean maybe we do need to elicit some help or, yeah. or continue to have some of those, attempt to have some of those conversations with our child. When I think of boundaries, too, I think about measurable things, bedtimes, hours of homework, performance on grades, attendance at school, time you get up. I don't know, but now I'm running in a Marine Corps camp here, it sounds like. Um, I don't know what the sort of reasonable expectations are with boundaries or what they even should be. The first thing with boundaries is to make them attainable and achievable. So it would be if somebody was going to bed at 3 a.m. and used to that over the, the last year, i probably wouldn't start with saying, okay, now at 9 p.m. you need to be in bed every night, brush your teeth, you know, have have everything done. Again, we say this a ton to have conversations, but sometimes that individual is the best expert in themselves too by saying what we are changing bedtime to get up in the morning. It can't be 3 a.m. anymore. So can we start at Midnight is that something that's reasonable right now? Yes, they may say no, and it may sound, you know, even corny to say that because this is idealistic. It also though shows that adolescent that oh, you're on my side. You're not just saying nope. You have to do this at 10 p.m. and I'm going to be resistant to that. We're rolling with that resistance in a way by having them be part of that solution. And that's the object of this conversation. The object of the game here is to get the kid who doesn't want to engage to engage, either as they go into some sort of treatment program, or maybe better yet, before they before that becomes necessary. Uh, what is social emotional learning, and, and how does that play into this conversation we're having, guys? With social emotional learning, it's the ability to understand and be able to manage emotions. There are specific uh, social emotional opportunities within schools. That's a big part of what our discussions have been, and schools have an opportunity to have those markers to be able to 
uh, improve interpersonal skills with children and adolescents, to increase decision-making opportunities, to have somebody, especially in adolescents, when they're trying to figure out who they are, further establish their personal identity, be able to work with someone to, as we were talking about boundaries, set achievable goals, all of that self-awareness and awareness of social connectivity go into social emotional learning opportunities Hmm. i guess it would be easy to just say here's the way it is but you need to let them figure it out establish those goals that sort of thing that's hugely important in terms of not just solving something for someone we can easily right go and say this is the solution i see you're struggling do this and everything's going to be okay unfortunately that doesn't always teach someone when the next thing comes up how to problem solve make a decision and then as we're talking about resiliency be resilient in the face of that next adversity so it's always having building blocks to approach that next obstacle or barrier that comes up so at rosecrans do you actually have opportunities where that happens where you set the kid up for the ability to or the necessity to do some of these things definitely i mean i would say at our residential program it's probably one of the biggest things that we stress right you know helping our clients gain some of that self-awareness and gain some of that understanding of emotions that they might struggle with whether it is depression or anxiety or anger or symptoms of substance abuse cravings and urges coming to a deeper understanding of that and then working with our our counselors and our and our staff to um Again, like Jason was saying, work collaboratively to come up with goals that are achievable to alter the outcome of of the struggle of that emotion, right? So if anxiety normally led to a, a student refusing school, and in our, in our program, a student, when they're struggling with anxiety, might refuse to go to a group, what interventions, what things can we do differently so that they start to gain some of that confidence in, in some of those skills to be successful in their environmental setting? And I suppose you don't present it to them as the- You're not saying, okay, now we're going to engage in social-emotional learning and you are going to learn to learn, but rather you present them the opportunities and they kind of figure it out. That sounds like, um, no, I don't know, a delicate dance for you as counselors to have to do. Absolutely. It could be something such as trying to build empathy in someone or, as John was talking about, confidence to go to group and we may refuse group. I don't really want to go there. I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't want to share, so I'm not even going to be present in that moment. What if there's an opportunity to just have them help in the beginning? Is there is there an ability to pass out papers? Is there an ability to pass out the pencils during our group treatment? So they still have some level of connection and ability to be in that space and understand it as safe and be a part of it as a helper. And that's a small step, right? And we're not telling them, hey, we're doing this as a helper so you can learn how to be more confident and actually be at group. But we have an opportunity to teach these skills that are going to be effective. Yeah. Well, if we're promoting resiliency here, I wonder what that starts to look like then. How do you see somebody coming out of it or getting into it? What does resilience look like in a young person? I think we tend to focus on the negatives here and, oh my gosh, now we're going to do about that. What does resilience look like? I think for for a lot of adolescents, whether it is with a counselor or a family member or someone at school that they feel safe with, part of that development is, like we were just talking about, creating that self-awareness. So, so if it's a if it's a challenge as simple as a, a test that they didn't think that they would be able to pass and they did awesome in, or um, again working through anxiety or a mental health symptom, being able to understand that I am overcoming some of these challenges and difficulties that maybe I thought 
I wasn't able to. And then being able to, again, whether it's the help of, of an outside person or within themselves, how can I transfer that to the next challenge, to the next obstacle that I know I can then work to overcome. And this sounds like something parents could promote too, right? Educators could promote that. Hey, good job. Well, hey, you know, we we got through that day or we got through that exam or we whatever the obstacle is, I presume verbally or some other way rewarding that or acknowledging that, right? Yeah, and I think again also having conversations with with a student or a child, what did work for you in this situation? You yeah. know, it doesn't mean that every, you know that the that a student has no skills whatsoever. With the clients that we work with in our residential program, they come to our program with a certain set of skills, some not so good, some awesome, that they are able to say, hey, I know taking a dog for a walk, or I know having five, 10 minutes to myself to cool off, I know that works for me, right? So again, when we do see some of these obstacles or challenges that students are overcoming, let's also ask them, hey, what worked for you, right? And how do we continue to promote that? Hmm. Assuming the boundary setting isn't working, the teen's pushing back. How does an intervention happen? Is 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 that the sort of tipping point? Is that what happens before a young person then checks in for seven weeks? Is it uh, six weeks? Six uh, six. Six weeks, right? Yeah. I wonder what the intervention looks like. How do you orchestrate that? I think before that conversation does take place, the one thing I would want to stress as we were talking about, you know, having a collaborative conversation with, with a child or with a client and coming up with some goals that are achievable, also making sure that we're giving that some time to see if the fruits of that labor happen. A lot of times I've, we've worked with families where we tried this for a week, it didn't work, so then we went to the next thing, and that didn't work, and we went to the next thing. Trying to change an unhealthy behavior can take some time, right? For anyone who's tried to go on a diet and a week goes by and then they're off the diet, and, right? Like this, It's a hard process. So before you know, we look at interventions, whether that's going to an outpatient um, uh, facil- uh, you know, provider and, and getting an assessment um, and seeing if they might meet criteria or meet you know, kind of standards to be in a residential setting. Let's make sure that we've given you know the the, the structure and the and uh, the the expectations that that we initially set up some time and and continue to try to promote our the the person to work through. Mm. But yes, at a certain level, if if we've given it a certain amount of time and and a person is still struggling, that is when you potentially could elicit some help from a professional. Yeah. What's your thought about that, Jason? Assessment never means that they're going to go into residential treatment. So at any point in an intervention, I think they can get an assessment. They can go in and get a second opinion. The delicate balance that you were even speaking about earlier is that is there – a too early point as well where that person is going to be really resistant to any level of treatment. We would say we still, you know, want to see them and because that provides an open door opportunity for the next time when they are struggling. In terms of time elapsed, an important message is there's going to be resistance from your adolescent anytime you're changing anything. I think that's the nature of the game. That's also a part of being an adolescent and trying to figure out who you are and, and push back on a little bit. Plus, As family units, we do get into a structure and whatever our consistency is. It doesn't mean it's always a healthy consistency, but it means that we have been doing something the same way a long time, and now we're asking everybody to change something or that adolescent to change something. So there will be pushback. We have to expect that as well. I suppose, too, parents, maybe they 
are so um, sensitive to what you said, you don't want to do it too soon, or they're in some measure of denial or guilt about where we are as a family right now, that they almost wait too long, too. Isn't that a possibility as well? So now it's crisis management. And it doesn't have to be crisis management. You're absolutely correct. It can be something where when we started to notice some of these changes or someone simply said, you know, I'm sad all the time or I'm not able to do the schoolwork where I was or I really don't want to see my friends as much. Well, would you like to talk to someone else? Yeah. If if it's not me you want to talk to, is there an opportunity to talk to someone else? Okay, and the answer may be no, but you know in your heart that the answer should be yes. So now what do you do? You can still make an appointment and still continue to talk to them about that and say, okay, I'm still going to have you chat with someone. It doesn't mean I have to be in the room. It doesn't mean that you have to tell them everything going on with you, but I'm concerned. And as being concerned and noticing some of these things, I just uh, want to give you an opportunity. And maybe you get to play the parent card here, right? You can say, well, too bad, Buster, but I, I, that's what we're going to do now. I don't know how you get him in the car, but maybe you physically get him in the car. But, I mean, at some point you have to use your authority and say, no, that's what we're going to do. Am I right about that? Or am I already starting it off on the wrong foot? You're half smiling. You know, I think parents are able to have conversations with with their child to ultimately get them help. You know, I've worked with many, many clients where the family will sit down, have a conversation in regards to, hey, we can go talk to someone in our home area, or we can look at other programs. And while that kind of this for that isn't always the greatest thing, families will elicit, will use some of those kind of skills so that we can get, uh, or they can get their child into treatment because ultimately they care. Does there come a point maybe on any given 42 days of inpatient treatment that these young people start to get it or start to buy in? Does, Does that happen as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, going back to the resistance with with engaging in treatment, we often will talk to clients about if your parents truly didn't care, they wouldn't have asked you to come here, or they wouldn't have tried outpatient, or they wouldn't have tried these different programs if they truly didn't care. Being able to help build some motivation, help build, again, a different perspective on why they're maybe in residential treatment or why they're an outpatient or things like that. As a client or as a person starts to gain some of that insight or, or is accepting of maybe that different perception, then they do make some of that progress and go, geez, Life wasn't working the way I thought it was going to work, and and I need to make some changes. Jason, I've toured the campus, and when I saw the kids there, they seemed to be buying in. I don't know where they were in the progression of their treatment, but there seemed to – you know what it looked like to me when I visited your campus was a normal school of kids who were going about their day and were not ashamed to be there, that I was touring. Um, it, It seemed to be a very positive environment. Let's put it that way. The environment is a huge piece of it. It's promoting that positive environment, just as you saw. It does not mean there's a a lack of struggle, though. I I think that these adolescents are so used to living one way that there are struggles that happen. But it is about, again, providing an environment where they can feel attainable success and then build on those successes over time. And as both of you alluded to, it's that opportunity then sometime during those 42 days to come to that aha moment like, oh, I can live life in a different way, and it's going to be okay for me because something was working before, right? If they were using substances or managing their mental health, for them, 
that was working. And now we're teaching different life skills and different coping mechanisms and that you have to manage some of those really difficult, complex emotions and that a couple weeks in, this is okay and I can do this. Do you have a sense when they leave how well-equipped they are? Based on our treatment plans and goal setting, there is an opportunity to understand what someone has gotten out of the program. They've hit certain markers, they've met some of their treatment goals, how engaged they've been in the process, how, you know, if they've come up with a plan, you know, for success at home and been really collaboratively involved with family members or their school, there is an understanding that, yeah, they've achieved a ton of skills over the course of the 42 days. We also have to understand that that doesn't mean someone's going to go into the school environment, their home environment that they just came from a month and a half ago, and then all of a sudden not, you know, have a little bit of a slip or lapse backwards or a struggle or stressor that we didn't think is going to come up is not going to, you know, be part of that path. So it's not just this linear straight line path. We have to understand that there are steps along the way where we need to also encourage these skills and empower those individuals to use those skills. Yeah, because it is another transition now, even though hopefully one in which you have more skills. So last thing then, fellas, I mean, we're talking about how to set boundaries, promote resilience for the teenager who doesn't want to engage. Now, John, what's just your last thought? What do you want the listeners to maybe remember foremost about that? We've talked about it a couple times and not being afraid to continue to try to have a conversation just because a client or a child is saying i'm okay leave me alone again by a parent saying hey when you're ready to talk or if you want to talk or i'm noticing these things i'm concerned like we were just saying kind of subconsciously or kind of under the rug they know okay mom and dad or grandparent or whoever their guardian is there for me if i need that help i know where to get it and it can be challenging right it can be frustrating um it can be incredibly worrisome for for guardians and parents but continuing to have that conversation and when you feel like you need the support do a google search you know you know call rosecrans look up our website you know so that we can help you get you know rally those troops and and create a, a support system for that person but by having that conversation again it allows that that child to have the ability to say yes i need help what about you jason there are strengths that your family can use. You've gotten to this point. Your adolescent may be struggling, but but they're here and able to you know have some hope. There is hope that exists. That help is there. It's around the corner, and recovery can ultimately happen. Yeah, we use the word hope when we talk about Rosecrans, and uh, we also say this: you can go to Rosecrans.org. It's uh, that simple Google search, Rosecrans.org, and we say life's waiting. And I think that's true about what we're discussing here. That, uh, boy, if you can get through this step, life really is waiting. Gentlemen, both uh, really interesting and and I think helpful. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is On Your Radar. Back to school in the new normal podcast series produced by WGN Radio and the doctors and clinical staff at Rosecrans. With over 60 locations throughout Chicagoland, northern and central Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, help is just a click or call away. Go to rosecrans.org or call 866-830-8729 for more guidance and information. Rosecrans, life's waiting. Life's waiting.